Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg ad-free and right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a a good one. In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more, but you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Ion Travel Podcast with CBS News Travel Editor Peter Greenberg, presented by Clear. Enroll today at ClearMe.com slash Peter and try Clear at the busiest airports nationwide. Hi everybody, Peter Greenberg here with another edition of the Ion Travel Podcast. This week, we explore the relevance of what's known as a flag carrier. What's that, you ask? Until recently, it was an airline that symbolized, represented, and flew the colors of its country, like Air France for France, Sabina for Belgium, British Airways for the United Kingdom, Iberia for Spain, Alitalia for Italy. But more often than not, these airlines weren't just flying the flag, they were representing huge debt. When Sabina finally went out of business, it was discovered that the Belgian flag carrier only made a profit once in its entire 75-year history. Ouch. And recently, it was Alitalia's turn to say goodbye. It started in 1946 as the Italian flag carrier, but it's now over. I speak with Patrick Smith, the author of Cockpit Confidential and AskThePilot.com, to talk about the history as well as the future of the flag carrier. And then Patrick and I will get into the latest developments in the criminal case surrounding the Boeing 737 MAX. Then I'll shift gears and head to the airport with the chairman and CEO of Clear, Karen Seidman-Becker. We'll talk about necessity being the mother of invention, and Clear is now branching out into sports stadiums, concert venues, and healthcare. And she'll explain those special applications. And yes, cruising is coming back. In fact, maybe even selling out. So I'll check in with Ashley Kosiolik from The Points Guy for an update on who's sailing, where they're sailing, and why cruise ship cabins are getting expensive. First up, Patrick Smith. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. I grew up I grew up on f- national flag carriers. I looked at Air France and I looked at Sabina and I looked at uh, KLM Royal Dutch Airlines. I looked at uh, our flag carriers in America that were flying overseas in those days, TWA and Pan Am. 
and of course, there's Alitalia. Well, where are those carriers today? Air France is still around. KLM is still around. Sabina said goodbye a long time ago. In the 75 years that Sabina was around, based in Brussels, it had a profit in only one of those years. And we always, we always used to joke that Sabina stood for such a bloody experience never again. But reality is, you never want to see an airline disappear. Well, just recently, Alitalia disappeared. Started back in 1946, flown by five popes. It was the Italian flag carrier. Um, and uh, I remember, you know, there was such style at that airline. Armani designed their uniforms. They had great food. They flew to great and romantic destinations. But for the last 20 years, that airline has continued to struggle. And finally, the struggle became too much. I remember just a few years ago that as the airline was really struggling uh, and they were looking for somebody to be the financial savior, the one entity that stepped up to the plate and said they might save them was the Italian post office. Are you kidding me? Well, as you can imagine, that didn't work out, and ultimately none of it worked out. And on October 15th, Alitalia ceased to exist. It basically has been liquidated and has flown off into the skies forever. Joining me now to talk about the history of these national flag carriers or international flag carriers, a good friend of the show. Of course, you can read them every week, every day at askthepilot.com, author of Cockpit Confidential, of course, a commercial airline pilot himself. Hello, Patrick Smith. Hello, Peter. Thanks for having me back on. So let's talk about this. I mean, we're seeing this happen. So many other carriers that are flag carriers are in jeopardy right now. Thai Airways in Thailand. I mean, these are legacy carriers within their own countries. We're seeing, and we're not talking about the new starts. We're talking about the legacy old carriers um, that we've come to uh, to actually depend on. Uh, is there room anymore for a national flag carrier? Well, most national flag carriers uh, do still exist, um, but there have been some notable ones that have gone by the wayside, and the most recent was Alitalia, which is a sad one because Alitalia was such a globally recognized brand. Um, as you just touched on, their 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 style, their history, going back 75 years, uh, the iconic A logo on the tail. I mean, everybody knew it. And now they join the ranks of uh, Swissair and Sabina and, and Malev and a host of other carriers that have that have vanished. Although in the case of Malev, which, of course, was the Hungarian carrier, why would you ever st name an airline with a name that stands short for, like, malevolent? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I had to say it. Uh, in the case of... Alitalia, I think the end is, it's on the one hand surprising, but on the other hand not surprising at all, because the carrier had been uh, basically insolvent for almost, it seemed like its entire history, but somebody always came along, whether it was the Italian government or whoever, to, to bail them out at the last minute, and, and finally that didn't happen. And so here we are, and there's a new airline taking the place, or trying to take the place of Alitalia called ITA. Yes, Italia Transporto something. Yeah, uh, yeah basically it stands for uh, Italian Air Transport, and, and the company at the last minute went and they, they added the word airways to the name. So now it's Italian Air Transport Airways, as if we were too <laughs> dumb to realize that it was an airline. Um, the, the whole thing was pre-planned. 
Um, this goes back several months. Alitalia was basically scheduled to be dissolved, and ITA would come and take its place and most of its employees, its roots, and so forth. So it's this is a little bit different in that uh, it's not a complete surprise. It's been kind of a managed uh, dissolution of Alitalia. But um, so with that being said, you think that the, you would think the transition would be an easy one, and it's been anything but. ITA has been plagued with website problems and phone app problems, and uh, they they couldn't get permission to fly to the U.S. and and, and on and on. So I I honestly don't know what the status of of their existence is right now, other than from their publicity materials, they have a really bizarre and uh, I think horrible new livery that replaces the. The rather classic uh, Alitalia livery. And, and there well, was another airline that was, and there was another airline that was briefly started about three years ago that has also been liquidated, called Air Italy. They're no longer flying, uh, and the ITA, new, you know, the new incarnation of of Alitalia, if you will. We don't really know what their true route network is going to be, how many how many planes are going to be flying, what their frequency of flights are, or is, uh, and. And now you have to look at some of the other flag carriers to see how they're going to handle it because, you know, the, the accountants are now starting to rule the roost when it comes to justifying, you know, life extensions of these, uh, of these flag carriers. Like you said, um, the example you told of Sabina, which had gone decades and decades without ever being profitable. And um, Alitalia was kind of in the same situation. And, yeah, I, I don't know how many governments around the world are going to just let their airlines kind of continue in this this fashion um especially now with so much uh competition out there you have the the gulf carriers and and all the low-cost upstarts that are that have popped up all across europe and elsewhere it's it's a very different operating environment than it was uh in decades past and of course we you know we haven't we haven't mentioned south african air another airline that's basically been grounded and will it come back? How will it come back? We don't know. Another good example, and the Asian carriers in particular, I, honestly, Peter, I don't know how they've lasted as long as they have. Thai Airways, you mentioned in the intro, they're a good example. They've, they've for a long time been in trouble, but they stick around because the government bails them out. And the the pandemic effects on, on these carriers you know, really shook things up to the point now where uh, – I, I don't know how any of them can be can be hanging on, but but they are. You know, there was a time, maybe 25 years ago, that national flag carriers were basically run by governments. Uh, they were nationalized, and then that didn't work out very well. They really couldn't compete on service or attitude or or frequency. They never made any money, and so in many cases they became privatized, and then they didn't work out. Uh, the real question is, who's left, and and how do you make a choice now as to where you want to fly? with any sort of sim symbolism or national pride. And, you know, who owns these airlines, who runs these airlines, who, who keeps them alive? Um, you know, that, that's a complicated discussion. Some carriers are outright owned by their governments. Others are partly privately owned. Others are entirely privately owned. But there can be some, you know, backdoor input from the government there, too. Uh, it's 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 hard to really figure out sometimes how these airlines are in business and who's keeping them that way. I know, and, and, and I think that's intentional. <laughs> I think it is. I, I think because if, if, you know, if, you actually, like, if you ever had a chance to you know, pull back the curtain, you'd realize you know, what, what, a, what a very you know, slim foundation so many of them are under. 
uh, or are on. Uh, and this predated the pandemic. This is, you know, what we're seeing now is the, is the, is the pandemic perhaps as a, as a catalyst to the demise of these carriers, but the problems, you know, didn't start in the pandemic. You had mentioned Air Italy. Um, they were funded uh, from Qatar, Qatar Airways. Um, Correct. And were engineered to compete against Alitalia. And, and by the way, what a horrible name that is, Air Italy. I mean, Alitalia had such a, a poetry to it. It's, it's another reason it's kind of sad to see them go. But uh, anyway, Air Italy, um, even with the Qatari funding, you know, this is pre-COVID, they, they couldn't make it either. Um, they folded, I believe, before the pandemic began. So They did. They did. I know it's 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 a brave new world out there and and one that's difficult to navigate. Another reason why nobody should make an airline reservation without using a credit card, not a debit card, and uh, not a check, not cash. You want to be able to protect yourself and uh, and understand what your rights are should the airline go under. Because in the case of Alitalia, you know we've known about it for the last couple of months, but there are people out there who have tickets on Alitalia. They had reservations in Alitalia. They had frequent flyer miles, millions of them on Alitalia. And if they didn't transfer those miles over to a partner carrier before October 15th, those miles went poof, never to come back again. So uh, very interesting stuff. The 737 MAX is a story that I've been covering literally since day one. I've said this on the air, maybe not to you, Patrick, but I've said it on the air, that people could go to jail over this uh, because of the email traffic that was subpoenaed and revealed between Boeing engineers and Boeing test pilots about how this plane got certified, where it got certified, when it got certified, and, and by whom. And that seems to be happening now. It does. And while I haven't been following this story too closely, somebody from Boeing was indicted. Do I have that correct? Um, you do have it correct. That One of the test pilots was indicted because of his email basically saying that he'd pulled the wool over the eyes. I'm paraphrasing here. That he'd pulled the wool over the eyes of the FAA inspectors so that they wouldn't look behind the curtain to find out that their flight management system really was more problematic and needed more training than they were revealing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know exactly what that means uh, without the full context, but it certainly doesn't sound good. Meanwhile, though, there's word out that, you know, this guy is basically being set up to be a fall guy and uh, of course it's the people further backstage who should be responsible and you know it kind of, it harkens back to the the days of the DC-10 with its cargo door problems and its engine yep. pylon problems and floor design issues and and those were deadlier far deadlier crashes that resulted from those design flaws and people from Douglas you know this is back in in the 70s you know, could have gone to prison and didn't so there's not a lot of precedent here I, I you know who knows which way yeah, to- if we go back you're right. You know, if we talk about the DC-10, when that cargo door blew out on that American Airlines DC-10 uh, on a flight to Detroit, and the pilots miraculously were able to land it with only using throttle. I mean, think about that. Uh, when they inspected that rear cargo door, which was built by a subcontractor called General Dynamics, uh, they knew they had a problem right then and there. They knew that there was a defective door latching mechanism that wasn't properly designed and wasn't properly inspected. And they lobbied, I mean, in ways that, you know, we can only imagine the FAA not to issue a a, a direct airworthiness directive and instead issue a service bulletin, which had much lesser, you know, much looser, you know, restrictions on who could fly the plane until it was fixed. And that's when we had the real problem uh, in in Turkey on the on the Turkish Airlines flight uh, over over uh, France, where the cargo door blew out and really blew in and they didn't have a chance and they crashed. And and that's when and, and was the DC-10 grounded then? It was not. Then, they, you know, they, they were able legally to keep these cases in 
in court for years and years and years and not really admit responsibility. It was unbelievable in these wrongful death cases. Then we had the crash of the American Airlines Flight 191 on May 25, 1979 in Chicago, where it wasn't a design problem like it was with the door. It was a maintenance problem. It was, it was uh, one airline in particular at that time, American, the airline that lost the plane, violating the maintenance manual, which basically said if you're replacing an engine on a DC-10, do not use a forklift truck because it could lose pressure and put undue strain on the, on, the, on the mounts, on the bolts. And American figured out that they could save four hours for engine change by violating the manual and doing that using a forklift truck. And on this particular plane, they had the, uh, the engine up under the mounts. They had two of the, uh, the bolts put in and the lunch whistle blew and they all went to lunch. And during lunch, the hydraulic pressure dropped on the forklift truck. It bent one of the bolts and broke the other. They didn't notice that. They came back and put the other two bolts in, and the plane flew as an empty ferry flight to Chicago, where it took on a full load of passengers on the Memorial Day weekend, May of 1979, and we all know what happened next. Um, And then the question is, who lobbied who then? to try to not ground that plane. But it was grounded for all the wrong reasons. It was grounded because not only did American Airlines violate the maintenance manual, but when Continental and United found out that American was saving four hours per change, they said, well, if they can do it, we're going to do it. And when they did a surprise inspection of all those other DC-10s that were flown by these other operators, guess what they discovered? Serious cracks in the wings on the pylons, exactly where those engine changes had been made. That's when the plane got grounded. I'm still angry about that. That's all true, Peter, but it's also true that the NTSB did find a design flaw in the pylon to be at least partly contributable to the accident in Chicago. The design flaw wasn't as uh, egregious as, as the cargo door design that led to the Turkish Airlines crash, but uh, was still a factor in, in the American crash. Well, listen, as you and I know, no plane ever crashes for any one reason. I'm sure it was a contributing factor, but the underlying cause here was the fact that they violated the maintenance procedures so that the other problems revealed themselves. The real problem right now is covering this story with the Boeing 737 MAX, which has been certified. I fly it all the time now. I don't have a problem with it because they fixed the flight management systems and they've increased the training so that the pilots know how to override it if they have to. However, it goes back to the behavior of the FAA, their behavior with the manufacturers and with the operators. And if we haven't changed that relationship, we have another accident waiting to happen. I can't tell you when, I can't tell you where, but it's that behavior that does not make me feel very good at all. Yeah, you're probably right, Peter. Um, As to the MAX specifically, though, a couple of weeks ago, I flew first time I'd been on a 737 Max ever, um, flying down to Colombia, and I, I just it struck me that nobody on that plane, and it was a full flight, you know, cared one way or the other that they were on a 737 Max. And I remember at the height of the Max controversy after the the crashes in Indonesia and uh, Kenya, no Ethiopia, yeah. I'm sorry, Ethiopia, and and also in uh, in uh, Indonesia, I think. But you know, at the height of that controversy, people people were saying, oh, this airplane is never going to recover, and people are never going to get on this plane and, and people will refuse to fly it and that's the end of the 737 and if, you know I, and I said to people our memories don't work like that when it comes to things like this go back to the Comet and the DC-10 and even the 787 you know these things make their spin through the news cycle and then people forget uh, the 737 MAX for better or worse is, is out there and people are going to fly it just like they'll fly on any other airplane my thanks to Patrick if you're like me you don't like to stand in line especially if there's a plan B. And at a growing number of airports, sports stadiums, and concert venues, there is a plan B. It's called Clear. Frequent flyers know it really works and saves time at security checkpoints. And now the Clear model is being applied to a host of other locations and venues in this COVID world. Karen Seidman-Becker, the chairman of Clear, explains. 
Lots of things to talk about in the news, but most importantly, let me start out with a question that any frequent flyer would already know the answer to, and that is, name two things that were around before the pandemic that worked then and work even better now. And I can only think of two. One is Global Entry, the one program that the government came up with that actually really works like a charm, and they've enhanced it now with facial recognition. And that's, of course, you don't want to spend 11 hours on a plane and four hours going through immigration and passport control. This way you go through in about 30 seconds and you beat your bags out every time. But the cool thing is it works. And the second thing is clear. Never more than now. We're dealing with the TSA that's understaffed by 5,000 agents. We're dealing with the TSA of which 40% of their workers have not been vaccinated, and they're dealing with the November 22nd deadline from the government, get vaccinated or lose your job. Gee, what a great idea for the days before Thanksgiving. And we're dealing with a surge of passengers coming in as of this Monday from 33 different countries overseas, because if you're fully vaccinated from those countries, you get to finally come to the U.S. after 18 months. And as I said earlier in the show, they're not waiting till summer. This is seriously obsessive VFR traffic. Visiting friends and relatives, they're not waiting. The bookings to come to the United States from those countries are up 750%. And if you take a look at the real numbers, we're in a capacity situation and a passenger load situation. We're only about 6% under where we were at 2019. Well, we're not going to be under it much longer as of November 8th. And that's coming up in what? Just about 48 hours. So joining me now, someone who knows a little bit about this and how to anticipate, not to mention react to all of this, the chairman and CEO of Clear, Karen Seidman-Becker. Hey, Karen. Hi, Peter. Happy to be here. Yes. I mean, listen, I've, I've seen the lines. It reminds me of a couple of bad summers. And I mean, I'm a member of Clear and I go right through to the front of the line of the pre-check line, which could be, you know, out to Brazil. What, what are you seeing these days and how have you adapted? Because we haven't even gotten into the, to the health pass issues yet. We're just still trying to clear security. Yeah, look, it's a it's a multivariable equation. And I think you're really seeing the convergence of many trends happen here at once. And so, like, let's break them down for a second. Distance absolutely makes the heart grow fonder. And people loved travel before you were seeing record numbers in early 2020. And, you know, you lock people in their homes for a while and they love it all the more. Everyone's got the bucket list of, you know, the next places that they want to go. And so people want to travel now more than ever. And I also think in this hybrid work environment and digital nomads, it's easier to travel. We here at Clear have launched work from any where August. We're back in a hybrid work environment. Everybody here is talking about where they're going to be working from in August. And it usually requires an airplane to get there. And so the ability and the need to travel has never, and the desire has never been greater, right? You look at TV and at radio and advertisements are for countries and for states and for cities. Travel is a huge piece of the advertising market right now. So there's the desire. People have been sitting at home and being able to track the tacos on DoorDash or Uber Eats or whatever they use from the time they order it to it gets to their door. And so this convenience economy is alive and well in so many different areas. It is the new customer expectation, this frictionless push of a button, total transparency experience. And then you're right, there's an absolute labor shortage. I was looking at statistics the other day. Actually, the two largest industries that have been impacted by this labor shortage are the travel industry and the transportation industry that is converging at airports. And so it is creating 
uh, real challenges, not to mention, I think many people have forgotten how to travel, right? From, from packing to, uh, you know, uh, traffic to security. And so it is resulting in a more challenged experience than, um, than people uh, would like to see. And so we think that that is going to continue and, and not for the short term, but for the long term, because the desire for travel right now, you're seeing hotel occupancy close to 2019 levels. And that is before the business travel and international have come back. Yeah, you're right. We have uh, we believe and and we here at Clear see some markets uh, from a verification perspective that are higher than 2019, and I think that the coastal markets will start to surge with business travel and international coming back. So I think the demand is going to be at record levels very very quickly, and both the supply. Obviously, I tried to book a flight the other day to go to Florida. It is hard to find the supply that you were used to. And there's the customer expectations and the labor, and so. Then what does that say? It says you need automation, you need innovation, you need partnerships. Look, that's exactly what we're about, right? From our home to gate app and seeing when you should leave for your flight to the clear lane and touchless travel and using your eyes to partnering with United on lounge access to the reservation tool we just launched in the Orlando airport. So anybody for free could book a reservation there in Orlando. And we're going to be bringing that to other airports. There's so much happening on innovation and partnership because I think everybody, airlines, airports, TSA are aligned to try to bring members experiences that are both safer and easier. But it is a moment and I, I don't see it letting up either on the demand side or on the challenges side. You know, you, you mentioned something else about, you know, working from anywhere. I have a, a belief and maybe, you know, you might disagree with it, but I think in the next six months, you're going to see the trend towards a four-day work week. Well, here's what I would say. We have a five-day work week here at Clear. Some might argue I'm working six or seven. Uh, it's a labor of love, but and many of our team members are as well. Uh, you know, I think that hybrid is really where it's at. So we're two to three days in the office, and we are there today. We were one to two as we phased it back in in October, zero to three um, January of this year till October. And I will say that our amazing ambassadors have been in the airports every day welcoming our members uh, but I think two to three days means that where are people those other four days and, and somehow I think Friday and Monday are not as popular in the hybrid world to be in the office, which means people can be working from anywhere those days. So I and I think, you know, I was reading an article about, um, you know, sick days today in the newspaper going away because if you have a cold, you used to not come in. Well, now you can Zoom. So I just think that we're seeing whole patterns shift. We're seeing different days be uh, very busy versus what they used to be and other days be less busy. Tuesdays used to be a hot travel day, not so much anymore. So I think it's creating patterns and, and then there's Airbnb and things of that nature and ride sharing and car sharing and Toro. So I just think you're seeing enormous shifts that are not yeah. going to go back. And I do not think that the industry is fully prepared for those. I, I you know, I, I I agree with you. And when we come back, I want to talk about that preparation and also in terms of who's actually talking to each other in the same room on the same topic on the same day, which is a really big problem when you're dealing with different governments in different countries and different politicians. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We've been speaking with Karen Seidman-Becker, the chairman and CEO of Clear, on a number of topics. But let's talk about the, the, the continuing confusion out there for travelers on so many different issues, one of which, of course, is what constitutes an acceptable form of identification proving my medical history and proving my, my vaccination status. It's, it's crazy. I've been traveling constantly for the last... 12 months. And there's no one government that understands what the other governments are doing. Some of them are, are more lenient than others. Some of them are more restrictive. The craziest thing, Karen, is I will, I will almost say this to a T, without exception, I will get to an airport and they're going to tell me how many forms I have to fill out, how many locator numbers, how many tracing numbers. I will get on the same airplane as I board it and they're going to say, oh, I have to fill out this information as well. And then I get to where I'm going and nobody asks for it. Nobody. I mean, it's like a bad arts and crafts assignment. Somebody has to tell me what we're doing. I mean, I remember, and I'm sure you remember this as well, Karen, when I used to come back to New York, when we had so-called, you know, quarantine, which it really wasn't, they had National Guard troops at LaGuardia asking you to fill out a form. But nobody matched the form against about, you know, your actual phone number or your actual address or your actual ID. So I could have put down Alfred E. Newman and they would have accepted it for those people old enough to remember who Alfred E. Newman was, Mad Magazine. But forgetting that, it was, it was a charade. It was theater. It reminds me of the original days of airport security after 9-11. So where are we now? And I, I know you have a health pass as well. So where are we now in terms of getting governments in every jurisdiction to recognize some document that's going to make it easier? Look, I, th- I think you bring up great points, but I want to recognize that this is clearly hard and, and people were obviously around the world not planning or prepared for a pandemic and now trying to reopen your own state or country, let alone connecting to all the other countries is hard. And, you know, obviously that's where I believe public-private partnerships come in and it's so important. I think it is hard. I also think you are seeing forward motion. So I, you know, let's talk about the U.S. You know, you have states and cities who are recognizing standards. And so, for instance, Clear's Health Pass recognized in New York, Seattle, LA, San Francisco as a accepted form of vaccination, recognized uh, by certain industries, recognized by whole states like Hawaii. So you upload it to the Hawaii Safe Travels portal and you can come on in. I see others st- and not have to quarantine. I see other states adopting it. So I do think people want to see efficacy and want to see track records before they adopt things, because I think there is an um, over-reliance on paper cards and and you are correct that that may not be the best, the best uh, and most interoperable system. But what we are seeing is states and cities working and then the companies and industries in those states and cities, whether it be, you know, the NFL and the Las Vegas Raiders or MGM use it as an acceptable form. And when millions and millions of people are then on the platform, it, you know, the power of the network effect is real. So I see progress. I see challenges in connecting the world, especially when some forms of vaccine are accepted and other forms are not accepted. 
But I think that's all the more reason that people have access and control of their information through some sort of digital initiative. And look, at the end of the day, every passport is different from different countries, but there's standards and there's accept, you know, there's acceptability and interoperability. So I see that coming, but I do see real progress here in the US. And I see that accruing benefit to both uh, citizens here, as well as companies and partners and helping, you know, sports and offices and restaurants reopen safely. So I see progress, but you are correct that it is hard and um, the paperwork is a lot and we're about taking yeah. friction. We're about taking friction out because what you can't do is is pile on the security that we've been focused on after 9-11 with the safety that we're focused on after COVID and now, you know, quadruple the time that everything takes. And to your point, you know, have people waiting four hours after they get off an 11 hour flight. So I think standards are coming partnerships are happening and and people are adopting it and it's working for them right so again it's i think it's all about sort of muscle memory we partnered with people like open table and resi so if you need it for a dinner reservation or a lunch reservation or breakfast here in the us you're using it and so i think that adoption is accelerating because people need it in more places and and then it's easier to use and travel and when it's easy like a barcode scan or an upload to the, I think Hawaii has done a great job. So they're a great example. Uh, people will follow that. Well, let me ask you this, because, you know, in just two days, we're going to have an influx of foreign vaccinated passengers to this country that we haven't seen in nearly 19 months. What effect is that going to have on the travel experience since they're coming with different documents from different countries? Uh, I can't talk to that, but I am concerned about that. It's a fair concern. Uh, obviously, CBP has been working really hard, and uh, but it's a fair concern, and we'll have to see how it shakes out. But I think you know everyone's focused on on reopening, uh, making experiences safer, and getting people back to what they love, and reuniting families. And so, um, it's important that we bring innovation and partnership to these efforts because uh, people want to come back to the U.S. It's a great place to be and to visit. Let's talk about sporting events. And of course, you just mentioned open table. In the sporting events, I remember last year, as you did, empty football stadiums, both college and professional. Now you guys have had an in input with those stadiums, with the NFL, with some stadiums. You mentioned the Raiders Stadium in Las Vegas, so that a clear pass gets you into the stadium, which proves your vaccination level. And maybe we'll get to a point where we won't have to wear masks. You're starting to see that. I think LA was putting out some rules on what it takes to, you know, take your mask off. And so I think that's exactly the point. People want to get back to what they love. I went to the University of Michigan. I was at a football game there two weeks ago. There were 109,000 people in the big house and it felt amazing for everyone to be together. It also felt great to win. Uh, then, the, the, wait, wait, wait a minute. Then there was the Michigan State game. I know, but that was last week. I'm talking about <laughs> focus. Uh, and, and so I think that, that the point is that the world is coming back, right? Las Vegas and not just the Raiders, but the casino industry there. Cruises are starting to set sail. Airplanes are full. People are back to work in a hybrid work environment, restaurants, bars, clubs. It's happening. And it's so important to create systems today because, yes, we were unprepared 19 months ago. We can't be unprepared again. And I think putting systems in place today and obviously CLEAR is focused on leading those efforts. 
is crucial to make sure that businesses stay open and that we are prepared. And by people adopting digital health systems, having access and control of their information with trusted providers who they can enroll once and use it everywhere, to use it at a Raiders game, to use it at the casino, to use it at the restaurant, to use it through the airport, it is so important. And so we've been launching products, both subscription-based products in the airport and free products or enterprise products like Health Pass to really make sure that we get people back to what they love, that we make it easy. We do it in a trusted and transparent way, never selling or sharing information. Like it's so important that innovation and technology companies take responsibility for transparency to ensure trust and safety of data so that people and governments feel good about adopting these systems. You've got to do the right thing every step of the way, and you've got to be prepared. Now, of course, in certain cities, uh, New York being one, I believe, Los Angeles being another, you can't just walk into a restaurant. you got to show them your proof of vaccination if you want to eat. And now you mentioned open table, but would your clear health pass also work just as easily just to show it? Absolutely. So it works to show it. And what I love is when people say, oh, can I see your ID? And I say, it's all in one, right? You are you. You are all the things that make you you. And that's what we connect you to. And so you shouldn't have to take out a driver's license and your health pass to prove that it is you and you've been vaccinated. It should be all in one. That is the frictionless answer. That is the frictionless customer experience. That again, I don't think you can emphasize enough travelers have were sitting at home and experienced the convenience economy in so many different ways and they expect that now in the physical environment and so the digital transformation of physical experiences travel being a huge one in every aspect of travel from the ride share to the airport you know to the sporting event to the hotel to the cruise ship etc is crucial i got your new customer expectation we can't move backwards you gotta move forward I hear you, and hopefully they'll uh, they'll let me go to an overseas country without filling out 95 more forms. My thanks to Karen. Yes, cruise ships are coming back, and many are selling out. There are even some new cruise ships setting sail this year and early next. Ashley Kosiolek from The Points Guy has the latest. Uh, If you've been following the cruise line industry as much as I have, you know that uh, the news changes by the hour. Uh, you know, usually there were, you know, if, if you want to go back historically, you sort of knew when new ships were coming out and uh, things were scheduled way in advance. Throw the calendars out, uh, throw the long term booking out. Bottom line is, uh, there are ships coming out all the time now as the cruise industry emerges from the pandemic. Uh, new rules changing at ports, new rules changing within countries, and of course, New rules changing within states that hosts that host cruise ships in terms of the ports of call. Joining me now from the points guy, Ashley Kishalik. How are you, Ashley? I'm well, Peter. How are you? I'm hanging in. So the question is, are you hanging in? Because I can't keep up. Um, you know, the, it depends on which cruise ship you're talking about in terms of the of the of the vaccination mandates. Uh, their ports are changing, and I should tell everybody that it is not unusual in a cruise ship contract for them to put in that they reserve the right to change ports of call based on weather or acts of God or what they would call force majeure. Right now, all three, I suppose, are, are kicking in as, as the cruise lines are trying to figure out their itineraries. Yes, um, it has been a whirlwind of a, a restart. I just came off my sixth cruise in about four months, um, maybe a week and a half ago, and I've got three to four more coming up within the next month and a half. So Ships are coming back online very quickly and 
travelers really do have to have a lot of flexibility right now because things, as you said, are changing by the day in terms of everything from, we haven't seen too many itinerary changes, thankfully, but um, in terms of protocols and, and just things changing with regard to testing and vaccination proof and mask wearing on board. And it's just been an interesting restart for sure. Well, my two recent ship experiences, one back in July when the Celebrity Millennium was the first U.S. passenger ship to sail in the Caribbean without stopping in a U.S. port. Uh, yes, we had to wear masks. Yes, we had to be vaccinated. Yes, we had to be tested before we got off the ship. And then my latest cruise experience was uh, on Silver Sea, on the brand new Silver Moon, in which I had to be tested before I left the U.S. I had to be tested when I arrived in Greece before I was allowed on the ship. I had to be tested on the ship, and I had to wear a mask in every area other than my cabin. And you know what? I still had a good time. Yes, that is what I'm finding as well. I was really worried about getting back to cruising and not because I was afraid that I would get sick. I was just afraid that these protocols would severely affect the cruising that we know and love in terms of feeling like we were restricted. And I think ultimately, at least for me, I mean, yes, wearing a mask is a bit of an annoyance, but Overall, cruising feels normal to me. I don't know if you felt you know, the same way, but it just, I'm so glad to be back that if those protocols are what is required for us to be on board, I'm, you know, for me, that's fine. I'll tell you the, I'll tell you the reason why I'm glad to be back. And I bet it's yours too. You just didn't mention it. And that is every single cruise ship that I know is operating at a reduced capacity intentionally. So if you're on a, a on a you know on a 2000 passenger ship that's only carrying 800 passengers, the service is great, nobody's online, you have space, built-in social distancing baked into the whole thing, right? Yep, absolutely. And it's interesting too because some of the ships that have been sailing for a few months now are starting to gradually increase capacity, but some of the ones that are just about to restart are still keeping it around, you know, 25, 30% and it really does at, at some points in time, feel like you're on your own private ship because it is so uncrowded. So, of course, travel is a very personal decision right now. But if you are someone who is thinking about going on a cruise and you don't like crowds, now might be the time. Okay, so now I got to talk about Plan B here, and that, of course, are shore excursions. I remember when cruises started in Europe last summer, meaning the summer of 2020, on European based cruise ships, they were doing shore excursions based on a very restrictive bubble where you could not do unescorted trips within a port. You couldn't explore on your own. You were heavily escorted uh, onto a bus that had capacity levels as well to a vetted location that had social distancing baked in. We're now starting to see some of those restrictions uh, loosen uh, as people can actually get off the ship and run around on their own. Yes, and in fact, um, most of the ports that I've been to since the restart are now allowing passengers to do their own thing, to, to get off the ship and wander around on their own or to book a third-party excursion. Um, in fact, using Celebrity Millennium as a reference, because I did that uh, one of the very first sailings as well, um, they called at Aruba, Barbados, and Curacao, and Barbados was the only one that actually required the bubble excursions. And I didn't find it super restrictive or anything. I mean, we had to wear masks, um, you know, on the bus to get, it was the catamaran excursion. And once we were on the catamaran, we were allowed to take them off. So, I mean, I think it depends too on the type of tour that you're booking as to how restrictive it is, if it's a bubble excursion. But 
overall, I, I think we are really starting to see that relax. Now, here's the other question that I get asked all the time, and we've seen it happen in the airline business over the past three or four months. It's unbelievable roller coaster of airfares, which which can be as low as you know forty dollars between U.S. destinations, simply because of the law of supply and demand. Is that happening at all uh, with uh, with cruises, or have they maintained their their fares? I think because of the pent up demand, there are so many people wanting to get on ships right now. And and as we talked about, the capacity is lower. I think because of that, they are kind of able to maintain their pricing. We've seen some deals, uh, but nothing like what we were seeing prior to the start of the pandemic. You know, there's a traditional playbook in travel and tourism that when you're when you're getting killed by by, you know, by supply and demand, you try to discount your way out of it. The cruise lines may not have to do that because of, of the pent up demand. Correct. Yes. And and ships are booking up. I mean, they're, they're already talking about releasing itineraries into 2023. And from what I have been hearing, they're seeing decent booking numbers. One other thing that I thought was interesting, and that is there's a subtext among all passengers. I won't say all, most, which basically says, as much as I want to go from point A to point B, I don't want to get to point B and get stuck and not be able to get home. Should I test positive? What am I going to do? And that's really stopping a lot of people from traveling in the first place. What are the cruise lines doing to sort of handle that fear? Because you can set, you can smell it. You, it it's measurable um, to let people know that they've got their back in terms of testing on the way home. Yes. So um, if you are... If you, if you are disembarking in a foreign port and flying back to the U.S., the cruise lines will generally test you before you disembark at their expense so that you have those test results ready to go to get back into the U.S. A lot of them are also requiring that passengers carry extra insurance that will cover them in case they become ill and have to return home. Um, when cruises first restarted, and again, I'll, I'll use Celebrity Millennium as an example, um, I was on the very first sailing back that was allowing Americans and two people tested positive on my sailing and the cruise line covered their expenses for them to to return home uh, on private flights so that they weren't ex- potentially exposing other travelers. So the cruise lines will not leave you stranded is pretty much the the bottom line here. However, let me give you one caveat, which I will share with everyone, of course, and that is you need to have a mutually agreeable definition of terms with a cruise line about what they will and won't do for you before you leave home. Now, you can check with your travel advisor, your travel agent, or the cruise line directly, but the bottom line is, remember, the rules are changing all the time in terms of vaccination compliance, depending on which ship you're on, which port you're leaving from, as in the state of Florida. Um, and there's a certain responsibility that every traveler should have and exercise to get as much information as possible before you leave home. And when it comes to vaccination and testing, that's what you need to do. And so don't just wait till the last minute, figure it out, get it in writing. And then you have that, that assurance that you can travel with confidence and, and have a great time. Yes. Absolutely. And one thing that I always tell people is, I know it's long, I know it's tedious, but make sure you read that cruise contract. As you mentioned, they can put some things in there that might surprise you, um, just so you know what what the cruise line is legally allowed to do and what they will provide for you. A lot of times, it is a lot of jargon, and it's difficult to understand. But as you said, if you have questions, always, always ask your travel agent or call the cruise line. 
And the most number one asked question, which should come as no surprise to anybody, is what is their policy on refunds? Um, if you if your cruise gets canceled, or if you need to cancel, what are your rights? What do you get back in return? Is it a coupon, a credit, a voucher, or do you actually get your money back directly deposited to your original form of payment? You need that definition of terms worked out before you leave as well. My thanks to Ashley, to Karen Seidman-Becker, and to Patrick Smith. And my thanks to you for listening to this Ion Travel podcast. For more conversations with the world's leaders in travel, as well as answers to your travel questions, be sure to rate or review this podcast wherever you happen to listen to podcasts. And for all the breaking travel news, don't just fasten your seatbelt. Log on to PeterGreenberg.com. Special thanks to our sponsors at Clear. Enroll in Clear at clearme.com slash Peter and zip through busy airports nationwide. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts.